The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Please remain standing with me this morning, church, as we continue reading through the 119th Psalm. This morning, we're going to be reading through verses, verses 17 through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold the wondrous things of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, these are truly precious moments. Your people gathered together for one singular purpose. To bow under the weight of your glory. And to rightly worship you. Then Father, as we sit in stillness and prepare to hear your word, there's an anticipation There's a weight, there's a seriousness, there's just a reality that comes crushing in in these few moments as we look forward with great anticipation to what you're going to do in the moments to come. So Father, my desire, my hope, my prayer is that you would guard my lips. I would only say those things which are true of you. You would guard the hearts of these people. that they would be open and exposed. This word would penetrate them and that they would be completely changed by it. Father, we ask these things not just for our good, although they are for our good. We ask them ultimately for your glory. And we ask them in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, we continue our exposition, verse by verse, through the book of Ephesians. Now, we're only four weeks and 11 words into this letter, but I pray that already you feel the weight of what we find here. You recognize the magnificence of this book. As I told you during the introduction, I believe this to be the most sublime expression of all that God is and all that he has done in redemption ever recorded. I urge you, therefore, to give yourself over to it to lean in, 
to engage your mind, to trust that God wants you to know what he means by the words that he says. And that above and beyond this, he wants you to be changed by what he reveals here. So as you know, what we read is a correspondence. This is a letter. It's a letter from a man called Paul. Now, Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was once a violent and aggressive persecutor of the church. He hated her, and thereby he hated Christ until he was confronted. On the road to Damascus one day, the risen Lord, he confronted this man called Paul and completely transformed his life. Not only a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ, not merely the greatest missionary and church planner in the history of the world, but an apostle. According to the sovereign, unchanging, efficacious, preordained will of God, this man was called and chosen and set apart. He was sent out in the authority of Christ Jesus to, to do many wonderful works, but more than that, it was through this man that God spoke this word. Therefore, having a firm grasp on who Paul is, by what authority he speaks, and the true efficient cause behind all of this, I would like to direct your attention to the second half, or maybe more accurately, the middle half, if there's a middle half, middle section of this first verse in Ephesians, to the recipients of this letter. To whom is it that Paul is writing? So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. The reverence of reading of God's word, we return to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe what you have said here. We ask you to have your way now with us. In your son's precious name we pray, amen. So by tracing through Luke's narrative record given to us in the book of Acts and then combining it with tidbits of Paul's other writings, we can determine it is very likely that the apostle wrote this letter from prison in Rome sometime between the years 60 and 62 AD. Now Paul here in the book of Ephesians, he doesn't give us any real details of his imprisonment. He simply says in chapter 3 verse 1 that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says that he's a prisoner of the Lord. And then in chapter 6, verse 20, he says that he is an ambassador in chains. Now, we know that Paul is not merely speaking in hyperbole or metaphor here. We know that for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he would literally lay down his physical life. He would willingly go into a chains and imprisonment, giving up his freedom that the gospel might be proclaimed. And so if my understanding of this setting is correct, we can learn much about the situation from which Paul wrote by looking at the end of the book of Acts. Acts 28.16, we read that when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a Roman soldier who guarded him. Acts 28, beginning in verse 30, we read that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Paul had quite a bit of freedom. While he was, in fact, under guard, he had the freedom to receive visitors to himself and to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without hindrance. He was, however, required to provide for his own expenses. Unlike today, what we find that is for first century Roman 
prisoners, they were required to care for their own expenses. They were not guaranteed three hots and a cot. If Paul was going to eat, someone must provide for him both food and or money. And so I think we get a little bit more insight from this as we look at the the four letters that we believe Paul wrote during this particular imprisonment. We call them the prison epistles, both this book in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. What we find there is that God had been using this time, this time while Paul was in prison, he had been using this time not only to grow his affection for the church, but to bring him to a deeper dependence upon God. We know, for instance, that the church in Philippi, we read in Philippians 4, that that church had been particularly faithful in providing for Paul's needs. That it was during this time that Paul would come to realize what it meant to be truly satisfied in Christ, whether rich or poor, whether free or in chains, to truly be content in all situations. It's in these letters that we can also, I believe, come to a better understanding of how it was that this letter came from the hands of Paul and reached the people in Ephesus. We learn, for example, in Paul's letter to Philemon that one of the visitors that came to him there in prison in Rome was a runaway slave called Onesimus. Now, Onesimus, he had somehow wronged his master. He had fled to Rome, and some way or another, he found his way to Paul. It was there under the teaching of Paul that he came to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, it turns out by God's absolute perfect providence that Onesimus' master was also a friend of Paul. As a matter of fact, I'm quite certain that Paul had led that man, this man called Philemon, that God had led that man also to faith in Christ. And so while Onesimus had become now a brother to Paul, he was quite useful to him during his time in prison, the apostle knew that he had to send him back. He had to send him back to his master to be reconciled. And so we read in that book, in the 12th verse, we read Paul say, I am sending him, that is Onesimus, I am sending him back to you, and I am sending to you my very heart. Paul had a love for this brother. Yet in his love, he knew that he must send him back to be reconciled from the one that he had wronged. And it was Paul's hope that this Philemon would receive him. It seems as though there was a church house in this man's in this man's house. And so it was Paul's hope that Onesimus would be welcomed back, not as a bond servant merely, but as a brother. And so he sends the man back, telling Philemon that he's to receive Onesimus as if he would receive the apostle himself. If we look at Paul's letter to the Colossians, I think we get one more piece to this puzzle. Colossians 4, 7, 8, he says, Tychicus will tell you all my, about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So it seems as though another of Paul's visitors there in prison in Rome was this man called Tychicus. Now Tychicus was going to go. He was going to accompany Onesimus. They were going to travel together back to Colossae, and there they would report to the church both on how Paul was and the work that God was doing there in Rome. And then to bring this thing full circle, if we look at the end of the letter to Ephesians, chapter 6 in Ephesians, beginning in verse 21, we read, so Paul says that so you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So it seems to me that unless this man called Tychicus had made this 1,300-mile journey from Rome to uh, Asia Minor more than one time there and back during Paul's imprisonment, it seems very likely to me that what's happened is this man has been sent by Paul along with this runaway slave Onesimus to go back to report to the churches there how Paul was doing. And it was by the hand of this man called Tychicus that Paul sent both this letter to the Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon. Now, 
if you have read any of the commentaries about this book, you have surely come to know that there is a number of early manuscripts that do not contain that word in Ephesus. Now, there's a number of possible explanations for this. and I'm not going to go into great detail about any of them this morning. If you're interested in that kind of thing, come see me, and I've got a number of resources I can direct you towards. But in short, the most, po- uh, the most popular answer to this question, why are there some manuscripts that don't have the words in Ephesus found in them, is that this letter was meant to be an encyclical. That's a letter that was not necessarily to one specific church, one specific uh, people in one specific city, but rather it was to be traded It was to be passed along to many churches within some set region. Now, some people go beyond that, and they suggest that what Paul did was that he wrote a number of these letters, and then where we read the words in Ephesus, he left it blank so that each church and each city, they could write their own name there. They could simply insert the name of their city so that while we read Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, there would also be a letter that said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Laodicea to the saints who are in Sardis, and so forth. Now, without going into any great detail, I reject this proposal. A large reason for this is that while we do find some early manuscripts that don't contain the words in Ephesus, we don't find any that contain the name of any other city. So that, combined with another, another of other, uh, a number of other details, lead me to believe that the words in Ephesus were original to Paul. If we were to have access to the original writing, the autograph, I believe we would find the words there in Ephesus. This doesn't have any great bearing on the theology of what we read here this morning. And so I'll leave it up to you to determine for yourself. Do your own research. Determine what you find to be true. But what we do know is that he had written this letter to the churches in that area. And we don't know for sure whether Ephesus, it simply contained one large church or a smaller system of house churches. But regardless, what we do know is that this letter would have been, it would have been freely transmitted It would have been copied and freely transmitted amongst all the churches, not only in Ephesus, but all of the Christianized world. So that while Paul was writing to these specific people in this specific place at this specific time, the words that God speaks to him, they are for all believers in all places at all times. Now the city of Ephesus, it's in Asia Minor, that's modern day uh, Turkey. In the first century, it would have been right on the coast of the Aegean Sea, although now it's some four miles back. There seems to have been some sediment and some buildup that left what was once oceanfront property no longer so. It's also at the mouth of the K-Star River. So because of this, it was a truly, truly amongst the most prominent cities in all of the Roman Empire. In addition to having a massive uh, theater that seated as many as 24,000 people, it also had the, the central bank to Asia, And, of course, it had the temple to Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was the largest known building in all of antiquity. It was in defense of this temple and her false god that the people in Ephesus came against Paul. They despised his teaching, many of them. They rejected and persecuted him and those that came with him to teach. So we read in Acts 18 that Paul had been in Ephesus just briefly before setting sail to Caesarea. It was at that time that he left Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus to preach the gospel. It appears as though it was less than one year later that Paul returned to this place. We read about this in Acts 19. We're told that Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue for three months before the Jewish people opposed him. These false men with hardened hearts, they were stubborn and unbelieving. They opposed Paul, and so Paul left the synagogue, and he went to the hall of Tyrannus. It's there that for two years, both Jew and Gentile would hear the gospel from the lips of Paul. We read in Acts 19.11 that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. 
and the evil spirits came out of them. So we know that some Jewish exorcists, they came along and they sought to capitalize on Paul's ministry. They sought to capitalize on the power and the success of all that God was doing through him. And so they sought to cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ, but instead they were overpowered. They ran, they left that place running naked and beaten. We read in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This may have been six, seven million dollars worth of books that were burned. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's at about this time that we read about a man called Demetrius. He was very alarmed. This man was a silversmith, and he heard that Paul had been preaching that gods that are made by human hands, they are not gods at all. And so he knew that if Paul was successful in his ministry, this would not only hurt his business, but this would be an assault on this false god called Artemis. So he whipped the crowd into a frenzy. It could only be called a mob. They began to chant together, great is Artemis, the god of Ephesians. And then they dragged Paul's uh, Paul's companions into the theater. They were seeking to, to cause an uprising, to cast these people out of the city. But we read there that the town clerk silenced the crowd. He called them what they were, a mob. He said that he found nothing in these men, that they had committed no sacrilege or blasphemy of their goddess, that they must be left alone. If they were going to bring a charge against them, they must bring this in an official capacity, not under mob rule. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would continue to be it will continue to be proclaimed there in Ephesus, even after Paul left, even as he left for Macedonia, that the gospel would continue to be proclaimed in this town of Ephesus, but it would do so in the midst of great darkness, under the weight of great persecution. So we can find something about how the church did. If we look to the end of the, at the end of the scriptures, we look in the book of Revelation, the word of Jesus comes many years after this word of Paul to the church in Ephesus, and Jesus says this to them in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 2, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So it appears as though the church has done well. They have heeded Paul's warning despite persecution and spiritual darkness and idolatry that was all around them. They worked hard. They would not receive just anyone who came and claimed to be an apostle. They would test them. They would reject them if their claims proved to not be true. But they had abandoned their first love. Now, we don't know what this means. Is this talking just about their love for each other, their love for God? Well, we know those two things can't be segregated. We know that you cannot rightly love man if you do not first love God. And we know that no man who loves God will not love his brother as himself. So this was the history. This was the setting of the original audience to which Paul wrote this letter. This was the church in Ephesus. But we must not be confused. We must not be distracted. You must realize that Paul did not merely write this letter to some impersonal corporate entity called the church or even to a small system of house churches. This letter, as he will make clear when we work through it, you will find that Paul wrote this letter to a body made up of many members. This letter was to be received and understood and believed and obeyed not just by the bishops, or the elders, or the teachers, but by every single believer in this church. I pray that you see the importance of this. Paul was not writing in secret code to some special class of Christians. He was writing to ordinary men. That by the Spirit of God, Paul would be used to speak the Word of God to the ordinary, everyday, 
followers, believers, the people of God, people just like you and me, what he says here is, to the saints. That's who these people are. More than anything else. This is the most important thing. More than where they came from, more than the culture, more than the climate, more than the exact location, more than where they lived, more than any other title that they might hold, the most important thing about these people, they are the saints. Not only these believers in Ephesus, but you and me. Again, I say Paul is not addressing some super class, some special class of Christians. What we find here and what we find in so many of Paul's letters is a description of every single Christian who has ever lived. They are the saints. A saint is a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a saint. There is no Christian who is not a saint. Now, for some of you, this might be confusing, particularly those that grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. Many people have come to believe that a saint is some kind of venerated super-Christian, a dead man, men that lived some long time ago, that in their minds, in order for a believer to be called a saint, number one, there's very few who can rightly be called saints, but in order for a believer to be called a saint, he must be used of God in some supernatural way. Men have to attest to some miracles that they've seen this man perform. In addition to that, he must be known far and wide. He must have a great name for himself, and most of all, a saint must achieve something like sinlessness. Isn't that what people say? People write songs. Even people within the church, they speak about two classes of people. There are the sinners and there are the saints. There are the ordinary, everyday Christians and then there are the saints, those who are special to God. We find the Apostle Paul making no distinction. This is his favorite way to refer to all Christians. Every single born-again believer, they are the saints. To be Christian is to be a saint. Think with me about it for a moment. There are nine of these letters that Paul wrote not to individuals, but to churches. In four of those, he addresses them to the church at large. And in five, he addresses them specifically to the saints. And listen to some of the things that he admonishes these people, these saints for, in just one of those letters. He calls them spiritually immature. They are jealous and full of strife. They are tolerant of abhorrent sexual immorality. They're shameful in their pursuit of worldly justice. They're guilty of defrauding each other. They dishonor the Lord's table through drunkenness and failure to care for the less fortunate. All of these admonitions, all of these rebukes, they came upon these people who Paul calls the saints. So clearly the saints are people who struggled with sin just like you and just like me. And so you may be tempted to say, wow, I thought that a saint had to be holy. Yes, they do. You see, I said that a saint doesn't have to be sinless. I never said that they're not holy. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what they are. The word that we find here, hagios, that's the word that's translated saints. That's what it means, holy ones. Every Christian is a saint, and every saint is a holy one. So perhaps we should ask the question then, what does it mean to be holy? You see, for most people, many people, the word holy is synonymous with righteousness or moral purity. And that's not without reason. Listen to what the apostle Peter wrote. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter says, don't continue to walk in the former passions of your life. 
the sinful desires of your flesh. You must no longer walk in those ways. You must be holy in your conduct. For the one who called you, he is holy. And so it's certainly true that those who are holy, they will no longer allow themselves to wallow. They cannot continue to enjoy the old, former passions of the flesh. But at its core, at its primary level, a Christian is a saint. A saint is a holy one. But we are not holy merely by earthly standards. This isn't that we are holy because we look out amongst all men and we say, I am better than you, therefore I am surely holy. What Peter says here is that this holiness is driven by, it finds its root in, its source, it is a reflection of the holiness of God. And so you want to know what it means for you to be a holy one? You want to know what it means for you to be a saint? We must look then at the holiness of God. So think with me about this. What does it mean for us to say that God is holy? Is this merely a statement about his moral uprightness? When we say that God is holy, is that all that it means? Does it simply mean that God is without sin? Look with me at Isaiah 6. Go ahead and flip there, please. We're going to be there for a moment. Isaiah chapter 6. This is a passage surely familiar to many of you. The late great R.C. Sproul preached on this passage more than any other, and he has greatly shaped the way I think, the way I understand what it means to be holy and what it, what it is we're to think about whenever we think about this holy God that we serve. If you haven't spent any time studying through this passage in Isaiah, I'd encourage you to find time to do it this week. But we read here in Isaiah 6, beginning in the very first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. This man called Isaiah, he finds himself standing before the Lord. We learn from John chapter 12 that this is almost surely the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the second member of the Godhead. This is the son of God seated upon his throne. Now King Uzziah has died. He served some 50 years in Israel, and yet now we find that while that king had died, the king of kings, he reigns. It is only he who is high and lifted up. He has taken his rightful place upon the throne, higher than all the others. And we read here that in this exaltation, in this rightful place, we don't get any description of the Lord's face. Instead, what does he describe for us? He tells us about his robe. This is a sign of his glory, of his majesty, of his beauty, of his worth. That's what the train is that comes behind a man's robe. Think about a, a woman on her wedding day. as She comes with a long train behind her dress. This is a picture, a picture of the importance of the day, the value of this woman. And yet the train of the, of the Lord's robe, it doesn't just flow over his throne. It fills the entire place. The entire span of this majestic place, it is filled with the robe. Just a sign of the glory of this one who now sits upon his throne. It's truly an awe-inspiring awe picture that Isaiah has of the king of glory seated in his rightful place, and above him we read about the seraphim. Now this is the only place in all of scripture that I can find that we read about these heavenly beings, this angelic host, these seraphim. We only know what we read here. Now the word it means burning or fiery ones, and so I have to imagine that to the eyes of, uh, of Isaiah, this, there was a radiance to these beings. 
There's a radiance to these six-winged angels who are now above the throne. But you must think with me for a moment. If these above, above all heavenly creatures, amongst all the angels of heaven, God had created and called these seraphim into his presence like this, to serve him, to worship him, to point others towards his majesty, then can you imagine the power and the glory and the splendor that they must possess? To stand in such privileged positions, you must understand that these were not even average angels. These were those that God had called into his presence. And yet, even with what we see here, not even having to go into our imagination, just seeing the words that Isaiah has given us here, it's truly striking. We read that they had six wings, and it was two they covered their face. Do you understand what this means? Think about Moses up on the mountain with God, and he desperately desired to see the glory of God. And what did God tell him? For no man can see my glorious face and live. Moses, you will just see my backward parts. You will see my back as I pass by. And even that, where did it leave Moses but with a glowing face that terrified the people as he came back down the mountain? And yet what we see here is that these seraphim, these perfect creatures, these sinless creatures, think about it. Had these seraphim sinned, had they been rebellious, had they even had a selfish thought in their minds, God would have cast them from heaven with Satan. And yet they're there in his very presence, these magnificent creatures, and I want you to think about what happens anytime man comes into contact with an angel of God. They fall down on their face in fear and sometimes worship. They're awestruck. They fall down like dead men. So we have here these holy servants of God, but even these creatures could not bear to look directly upon the immediate glory of God. Even they could not bear to see his face. These heavenly servants, they too would be blinded, much like Paul on the road to Damascus. They could not bear to see the immediate glory the full force of the glory of God's face. Do you understand this? Not only this, not only did they cover their face with two of their wings, but with two of their other wings, they covered their feet. I want you to think again about Moses. What happened when he came into the presence of God? What did God tell him? Remove your sandals from your feet. This wasn't that God was worried about him getting the ground dirty, bringing in mud from some other place. It was that this is an image. This is a picture that man's feet, they're a reminder of our creatureliness. Perhaps a reminder of our connection with the dirt from which we came. This is a reminder for Moses. Moses, you must remember who you are, that you are still man. That even as you come into the presence of God, you are man. And that no matter how pure you become, no matter how holy you become, no matter how spiritually mature you become, there will always be a separation, a distance, a rightful ordering in our relationship to God. We are the creature. He is the creator. And even with regards to these seraphim, it never changes. Not in the holy places of heaven, not in the resurrection, not even when we come into glory. We see the evidence of that right here. That these seraphim, they seem to be saying by covering their face, God, we cannot behold the fullness of your glory. We must cover our feet, our creatureliness, this reminder that we are wholly and completely dependent upon you. It is you who has made us. It is you who sustains us. It is you that we stand before as our creator and our God and our king. You see this? So as with these other two wings, these seraphim, they fly there and they cover their feet and they cover their face and one cries out to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Church, as best I can tell, this is the only time in Scripture where an attribute of God is named three times. A clear indication of the infinite nature of God's holiness. He is not merely holy. He is holy, holy, holy. This is a song of praise. 
the worship of these heavenly beings. God, you are perfect and you are infinite in your holiness. And it's then that we realize that God's holiness is much more than just a moral uprightness. It's much more than just a sinlessness. Please understand me, friends. You need to get this more than anything else in all the world, that God's holiness is his otherness. It's the difference between him and us. Don't you see? That truly we are like God. We are made in his image. We are icons. That we exist to bear his image in all the earth is those that are made in his likeness. But difference, I'm afraid that for so many of us, we simply have no idea just how other he is. Just how different he is. So much so that when we say, what does it mean to be holy? The immediate answer is, like God. We know nothing of holiness apart from God. There's no way to describe God that goes outside of God. This is why when he describes himself, when he gives his name, what does he say? I am who I am. I cannot be compared to another. I'm completely and utterly unique in a class completely of my own. I'm worried you don't see this. You need to see this more than anything else. More than God's love or his mercy or his justice or his wrath. You desperately need to know of God's holiness, his otherness, the inconceivable difference between us and God. This is the thing that drives worship. This is the thing that drives men to their knees. This is the thing that drives men to call out for mercy. You want to know who God is, you begin here. God is infinitely, unchangeably, ferociously holy. He is not crafted in your image. Anything that is in you that reflects him is merely that, a reflection, a shadow, a pointer, an icon, an image of the one who is there. Do you understand? God's not like you. He is other. So it's in the face of this holiness that we see the only rightful response it is humble worship, even from these sinful, sinless and powerful heavenly beings, it's worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth, the whole of creation, all that is, it exists as a stage, a place in which this infinitely holy God may express his holiness in what can only be called glory. The weight, the majesty, the beauty of all he is, all that exists, exists to reflect that. It exists as a place where he can magnify that, where he can call men to worship him in light of his infinite holiness. That the God who is outside and above and beyond time and space and every other part of creation, that he has chosen to reveal himself in his glorious holiness in and through his creation. And we have no idea the wonder at this, the beauty in this, the grace and the love in this. Because there's nothing greater in all the world than to behold this holy God. He's created us to only be satisfied in beholding his holiness and his glory. And so there's no greater gift to creation than to reveal it to us and in us and through us. Now we must move on to talk about how any of this affects us. How it is that we're to think about our own holiness in light of God's holiness. But I can't help but make one more point. We read that as this angel cried out, holy, holy, holy. The foundations of this place shook. We don't know whether this was a vision given to Isaiah in the actual temple, the physical temple there in Jerusalem, or if this was, this was a heavenly image, the heavenly temple. But whatever it is, we read that the foundation shook and the whole house was filled with smoke. 
Dear friends, all creation shudders at the holiness of God. And this man of God, surely if we had taken a straw poll, surely if we had gone around and compared Isaiah to the others that lived in his day in this place, surely that we would found found that he was as righteous as any. And yet what we find is this man crying out, woe to me, I am about to be destroyed. This man recognized that we are not only separated by God in our creatureliness, we are separated by God from our sin. He says that he is an unclean man with unclean lips. He is surrounded by unclean people with unclean lips. And he says, woe is me, for I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I am undone, I am lost, I should be destroyed. Again, Isaiah didn't know this by looking around at other men. Isaiah might have been quite content in his holiness, having looked at those who were around him. And yet once he came face to face with the king of glory, once he came face to face with the holy, holy, holy God, it was in that moment that he recognized, I'm not only the creature standing before the creator, I am the sinful man standing before the glorious one, the perfect one, the sinless one. And he knew that he was undone. Isaiah was terrified, not just him, but every single man who has truly beheld the glory of God. Every single man who has seen the holiness of God. Moses and Isaiah, the men on the Mount of Transfiguration, Paul and Job and the Apostle John. Do you remember what happened with Peter? I'm not talking about the the immediate glory of God. I'm not talking about a full-on vision of the glorious face of God. I'm talking about when he was first called by Jesus. I'm talking about when he's there in the boat and he can't catch any fish and Jesus tells him to let down his nets one more time and his nets get so full they're about to break and the boat's about to capsize. Do you remember Peter's response on that day? He comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's the rightful response, the universal response to the glorious, thrice holy God of the universe from sinful men, from his creatures that we stand before him and recognize we have nothing before you but to fall down on our face in fear and cry out for mercy. Lord, save me or I will be destroyed. What is the fear there? Is the fear merely from our sin? Is the fear merely from our corruption? No, God, save me from yourself. God, you are so holy and you are so perfect and you are so righteous and you are so just and I am so not that if you don't save me from yourself, I will be destroyed. I will be utterly undone. I will come completely unwound. It is from there that men can be driven to Christ. Do you remember what happened as you moved through the text? That the angel took this burning coal from the altar. It's a picture of the sacrifice that is necessary. Surely a picture of Christ Jesus himself. And he takes it and he touches it. He sears the man's lips. He goes to the very point of his sin. And he sears him and he says to him, your guilt has been taken away and your sins atoned for. Praise God that he does not destroy all who come into his presence. But it's only from this place, it's only from this place that man might be sanctified, that he might be made holy, that he might be called in the right relationship with God, a place of fear and trembling. And yet today, somehow, we have found man demanding, not just wanting, not just expecting, we find men men who call themselves Christian, we find them demanding that we make them feel happy and light and affirmed in the presence of God. How many times do we hear this? I want a worship service that isn't so heavy all the time because life is hard. I want to come into the house of God and be lifted up when I leave. Dear friends, if this is you, you do not want the presence of God. It is only he who is lifted up. To stand before him and see as you rightly are, To see yourself as a sinful creature 
before the sinless creator? You will have nothing but to fall down on your face in the dirt and mourn, to cry out for mercy. Don't you understand? Over and over and over again, what does scripture call us to? Fear God. Do you know what that word fear means? Be afraid. Fear God. And we have so twisted this into somehow believing that God is our equal. That it is God's job to cheer us up in our sin. It's God's job to make us feel good about ourselves. But we don't see that in Scripture. The true men of God, the true saints, those who have been called and set apart and with true eyes see the glory and holiness of God, they come to no other place but this, struck with fear, silence and fear. It's only from that place that you can rightly understand what it means for us to be saints, the holy ones of God. Because we praise him that he is not only transcendent, he is not only above and beyond and outside of all of his creation, he has chosen to come to us. He is imminent, he is close, he is near. He is acting within time and space so that we might not only see him and tremble, that we may know him and find peace. You see, this holy, holy, holy God, he has chosen certain things to be holy, to be set apart, to be different unto him. Think back to creation. What did God say about that seventh day? That seventh day when he rested from his labor. God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. Was it that the other days were spoiled somehow? Was it that there was something about that seventh day that made it less sinful than the other days? No. That God chose it and set it apart and said, this day is mine and therefore it is holy. Think about the temple. King David says that I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Think about the elements within the temple, the lampstand and the laver and the utensils. Think about the priests and even their garments. Think about the materials that went into the making of this temple. All of these things, God declares them as holy. But they weren't holy by nature. The precious metals, the fabric, all that went into this. These holy things, they were not any different from the other things from which they had been drawn out. The materials that God used to make the, to make the ark, the wood and the gold and all that he used to make the ark of the covenant, these did not come down on a meteor from heaven. They were made by the hands of man, and yet this thing was holy. It was so holy that when a man called Yuza carelessly reached out his hand to touch it, to steady it, he fell down dead. But the reason this thing was holy was because God had declared it holy. He said, it is in this place that my presence shall dwell. It is holy because I've set it apart. I've called it out. I've separated it from all the rest that is. It is mine and it is holy. Don't you see? You must come to understand that when the infinitely holy God of the universe reaches out his hand and touches something that is common, he doesn't become defiled. That thing becomes holy. We see this most clearly with the Jewish people. They were a holy nation, called and chosen and set apart. And we see here that to be holy is not just to be called out of something, it's to be called to him. Not just out of the world, but to God. And he had called these people to himself. He had called them to be separate. Think about all the laws, 
By the way, he had called them out of slavery. He had redeemed them. He had made them his people. And then he gives them the law. But think about all the ways that they were to show this holiness, to reflect this holiness, this separateness, this set-apartness in the law that God had given them. And yet God makes clear, he makes absolutely clear that there was nothing inherent within them that qualified them for holiness. Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God chose you to be a people for his treasured possessions. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Do you understand this? God says, you are my holy people. You are my treasured possession. I could have called any people in all the earth because they're all mine. They all belong to me. I both created and sustained every single one that is, but I chose you. Not because you're the biggest, not because you're the brightest, not because you're the most special. I chose you. You see the circular reasoning here? He says, I didn't love you because you're lovely. I loved you because I love you. You understand? According to my good purposes, I loved you and I made you holy. I made you precious. I made you special. I called you out of the world and I called you to myself. And why did I do this? Because I love you. And because I made a promise to your fathers. And guess what? They weren't lovely either. I imposed this promise upon myself. They didn't choose me. I chose them. And so what you find all of a sudden, dear saints, dear holy ones of God, is that you are holy, not because of anything in you, but because of God's love and his faithfulness and nothing else. Do you see now? Surely you see it. You're a saint. You're a holy one of God. If indeed you are his, You are a holy one of God, not because anything in you. Because the unshakable love of God. We come before him and we see his infinite holiness, his ferocious holiness, and we go, I am undone. I should be destroyed. We tremble at the very mention of his name. And yet in love, for the sake of his own glory, he says, I chose you. I reached out my hand and I touched you as a defiled thing and I made you holy. Do you understand? This isn't just the message for the people of Israel. He says the same to us in 1 Corinthians. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Do you understand this? He goes on to say that it is because of him, it is because of God that you are in Christ. I called you out of the world and I set you in Christ that you would be a holy people, a special people, a saintly people. Praise God. We praise him that he has come to dwell in us. The holy people, he sends his Holy Spirit, he comes to dwell in us. And in this, he is sanctifying. That's the root word of sanctify. It is also holy. Basically, there's three words, all with the same meaning, holy. You are saints. You are holy. You are being sanctified. You were sanctified at the moment he called you. He chose you. He touched you. You became sanctified and holy and saints. And he is sanctifying you. He is separating you from all that is ordinary, all that is profane, all that is corrupt. Do you see now? This isn't about keeping a bunch of rules. 
This isn't about minding your P's and Q's. This isn't about trying not to walk in the mud. This is about being different, set apart, holy unto God. Do you see it now? You're saints because you are holy, and you are holy because the God who is holy has called you to himself. And in this holiness, yes, indeed, you will be holy in your conduct. It isn't that you earn your saintly status. It isn't that you fear losing your saintly status. It's that you seek to bring honor and pleasure and glory to the one who has called you to himself because the saints are different. We're not like the world. I want you to think about the utensils. Think about the tools that were used in the temple. They weren't to be used for anything else because they were his. He said, you are mine and I have made you holy and therefore you cannot be used for the profane things of this world, the ordinary things of this world. Now to take the tongs that were used there in the temple and to go use them, even for the most magnificent thing in all the world, I'm not talking about overtly sinful things, but to use them for anything lesser than the things of God, this was an offense against him. He said, you are holy and you are set apart and you are used only for my purposes. And this is what drives our conduct. This is what makes us look different from the world around us. And different, you must understand that just as men fall down on their face in fear before the holy, holy, holy God, unholy men will fear that which is holy. They will distrust that which is holy. They will flee from and seek to destroy that which is holy because you will be different. You'll be uncommon. No longer will you be able to wallow in the profane things of this world. You'll be unable to love that which is unholy. Do you understand? Your affections will change. You will no longer go back to the slop of your former life. You will detest it. That which you once delighted in will turn your stomach. The thought of it will be repulsive to you. And things that you once fled from will be your ultimate joy. This is so good. Turn one more time. I know I got you flipping. Go to Ezekiel 36. You're going to see how this comes together, I pray. What we find here is that God is furious. His chosen people, this holy nation, they have defiled the land that he has given them. They're not living as holy people. They're not living as separate people. They're not living as different people. They're living just like everyone else in idolatry. Sin. So God scatters them among the nations. And even there, under the judgment of God, they still don't live as holy people. They still don't show any signs of holiness. So even there, they continue to profane the name of God. They were his. He had redeemed them from slavery. He had called them to himself. He had blessed them amongst all the peoples on the earth, and yet they continued to live and love and walk just like the rest of the world. And because of this, the nation scoffed at God. Huh, this is your people? This is a reflection of your holiness? This is what it means to look like you? They scoffed at God because of his people. And hear what God says in verse 21. Ezekiel 36, verse 21. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Dear children, how many times have I told you God's number one and ultimate passion, his absolute concern is for his own name. You are not the center of God's universe, his name, his glory. The manifestation of his holiness, that is the center of God's universe. And he will do whatever he must do to defend that. But praise God when we see what he does. Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but it is for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. 
And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Dear children, I hope that you see this. Our only hope in the whole universe, your only hope is that God's glory is the center of his universe. Our only hope is that he acts for the sake of his name. Our only hope is that he defends his holiness. So I want you to take note now, from this point forward, I want you to circle all the times that he says, I will. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and all the idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my commands. You will dwell in the house that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all uncleanliness. Difference, do you see this? I will. He's not asking permission. He's not waiting on you to take steps towards him. He isn't chewing his fingernails hoping that you will wake up today and decide to be holy. He says, you're a saint. You're a holy one. I have chosen you. I have called you apart. I should have destroyed you. I should have destroyed you and I should have wiped you out, but I touched you and thereby you became holy. You became sanctified. You became mine. And even in those moments when we don't feel like the saints, even in those moments when we see nothing in us that is lovely and honorable and saintly and holy, he says, I will not turn away. Because I will do all of these things because you are mine. If you are truly his, you don't know if you are a saint. He says, I will do these things. If you are a saint, if you are his, if you are a Christian, if you have been chosen and called apart, he says, I will do every single one of these things in your life. I have done these things in your life. There's so many men that they say, we look around the church and it looks just like the world. Dear friends, not everyone who's in the church is the church. Because the true saints of God he will do this. He will impose himself upon you. This is invasive stuff. There's no resisting. There's no running. There's no sin that could disqualify you from this. He says, you are holy. You are set apart. You are precious to me, and I will wash you. Don't wash yourself. I will wash you. I will make you clean. I will remove you from all cleanliness. It's a picture of regeneration. I'll put my spirit within you. I will take out your heart of stone that's resistant to my word, that's resistant to my will, that hates me, that doesn't want to come and worship, and I'll give you a heart of flesh that loves me. I'll give you a softened heart of worship and praise and love. I will do these things. The same spirit by which I created everything that is, the same spirit that hovered over the waters of the earth, the same spirit that came upon my son, by that spirit I will come to dwell within you and you will be something new. You will be clean. You will have new affections. Dear children, see this, that by that spirit he says, I will cause you, I will cause you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and to obey my rules. Do you see? You are holy and you will be holy because I am glorifying myself through you and I will not allow my name to be profaned. That's your hope. And so then you might rightly ask, but wait a minute then. Why so many words about being holy? If this is all the work of God, if there's no resisting the work of God, if God merely reaches out his hand upon sinful and defiled men and thereby makes them holy, and it's going to be his guaranteed work by the coming of his spirit that you will know, you will keep, you will walk in my commandments. 
Then why over and over and over again are we called to walk in his commandments, to obey his rules, to seek holiness? Dear children, it's because by the spirit of God, he uses the word of God to accomplish his purpose. Do you understand? It's by the power of his word. The Holy Spirit, it takes this word. Think about, think about what he said to the prophet Jeremiah. Speaking of the same thing, speaking of the promise of the new covenant, he looks to the people of Israel and he says, not all of these people are truly mine. Not all of these people will you see in heaven. Not all of these people have been born again. Not all of these people have a new heart of faith. In fact, it's only a small, faithful remnant. But the promise was, I'm building a new people. And the people that will be in this group, they shall all be of faith. They shall all be those that are born again. They shall all be those who become holy and saintly. So he says in Jeremiah 33, 33, excuse me, 31, 33, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They shall all know me. All will know me. From the last of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. For the saints of God, for those he has chosen to be holy ones, not only has he forgiven our sin, but he writes his law upon our hearts. He said, I will cause you to walk in this law. I will write this law upon your heart. I will give you a softened heart that loves this law, that understands this law, and you will all know me. There's not a one that is in the, the, the Constitution, in the group, in the party of the saints that will not know me. Will not have a heart that loves my law, and on their law, I will write my, on their hearts, I will write my law, I will write my commandments. No longer will they need another to teach them. I will teach them myself. For I will come and I will dwell with them. And it's from this place, from this place of love, and holiness, that we walk out this obedience. This is what it means to be a saint. That from the moment of your saint call to be a saint, from the moment of your salvation, you are justified before God. He looks upon you and he sees the holiness of his perfect son, completely justified, completely forgiven, completely sanctified before the living God. He looks upon you and he sees no stain, he sees no sin, he sees no filth. And yet throughout this lifetime, his working within you, he will cause you to grow into love and an understanding and an obedience to this word, not to earn favor with him, but to please him. With a desire to never dishonor him. With a desire to be separate unto him. I want you to think about what happened the day that I married Amanda. I was separated unto her. Off limits to all others. Lord of the universe says you are mine and you will walk like it and I will make sure of it because my name will not be profaned. And then we labor. We struggle with all of his energy that is powerfully working within us. Dear friends, it will feel like work at times. It will feel like an absolute dogfight at times. But I'm telling you that for those that keep their eyes fixed on him, that our hope in this is to see the glory of God, to continue to come back to the glory of God and to see his holiness and say, in him is my hope for holiness in him is my hope for obedience in him is my hope for all that I need for life you continue to come back and you see his face over and over and over again and crying out to him say God you said that you would be faithful you said that you would cause me to walk in holiness you said that by your spirit you will you will you will do all of these things and so I'm crying out to you now father do these things cause me to hate my sin Cause me to walk in holiness. Cause me to look like a saint because I do not want to profane your name. I do not want to bring disrepute to your church. I do not want to dishonor your holiness. 
Dear friends, I say to you today, if you don't see this taking place in your life, if you don't see God doing these things, God is not negligent. Again, these aren't super Christians. This is what it means to be Christian, to be a saint, to be holy, to be set apart. God says, I will do these things. If you don't see this happening in your life, what grounds do you have to declare, I am Christian? I am a saint. I am his. But if you come into this place today and you find yourself still able to tremble before him, it's not too late. Do you understand? A hardened heart does not tremble at the word of God. He's given you opportunity. He's given you a chance. You hear his voice. You hear his word and you tremble. There's only one right response. You fall down on your face and you cry out for mercy and you trust that he will give it. He will not turn on any away who see him. He has given you eyes to see him, heart to believe him. Therefore, you cried in mercy from that place, and he brings to you mercy. He touches you, and he says, you are now clean. You are now separate. You are now different. You are now a holy one because of nothing in you. We're going to gather next week, and we're going to talk about what it means to be faithful in Christ Jesus. We gather together for Easter Sunday. We celebrate the grounds for why all of this is possible in our lives. That this holy, holy, holy God sent his infinitely holy son to take away that filth. That he was the sacrifice. He was the way by which we may be cleansed. I pray that God uses this time to begin preparing your heart for that now. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your call. We thank you, Father, that you have chosen to use folks like us, not the pretty, not the special, not the brilliant, not the sinless, as if there ever were such a man. That you have called the weak and the humble and the faithless. That you have reached out your hand and you have touched us. You have declared us yours. And that you don't stop short, Father. That the promise is that you will complete your work that you will work from this day to our very last to continue to mold us in the image of he who is holy, your son, Jesus Christ. Father, my hope is that we would quit being comfortable in our sin. For far too many of us, we claim to be the saints, we claim to be the children of God, and yet we see no discipline. We see no hand of correction in our life. So Father, if there's any of us here that are deceived, that are confused, that have allowed the enemy to lull us to sleep and allow us to believe that somehow we can be right with you while continuing to love this world. Father, I pray you shake us from that now and do what only you can do. Save us. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.